Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, church, good morning once again, and and welcome back to the book of Acts. We are turning the page to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through verse 12. I've titled this message, No Other Name, and I think it will be evident the reason for that title as we survey God's Word this morning. I want to remind you of the context a little bit. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost, the Spirit comes, and Uh, A number of Jews there in the city of Jerusalem, Jews gathered from every nation under heaven, respond to this miracle, and it provides Peter the opportunity to explain what's going on as the fulfillment of prophecy of Joel 2, and they hear the gospel, and 3,000 come to saving faith in Christ. And then we see at the end of chapter 2, this Christ-formed community, that the Spirit comes upon them, and He changes them. He makes them... Uh, love one another, sacrificially serve one another, pray together, and, and there's miracles that are being worked by the apostles, and we get an example of one of those miracles at the beginning of chapter 3 with the man born lame who is, who is healed. He's dramatically healed. He's able to walk. He's bounding and leaping and praising God. He goes into the temple, and we've seen that this is a picture of the transformation that God makes in, in the life of every man or woman who comes to saving faith in Christ. We're, we're born spiritually lame. We're born rebels against God. And He enlivens us and awakens us by the power of Spirit to, to walk after God, to, to stop walking after self and to walk after the Savior. And so this healing leads to another opportunity uh, for Peter to preach the gospel. And he proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets anticipated. He is the offspring that we should have been looking for from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then as we turn the page to chapter 4, we discover that not everyone is happy to hear the message of this great Savior. Would you hear with me the Word of God? And as they were speaking to the people, the priests And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 on the next day. Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, 
this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, or this one, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, help us to feel the weight of the divine imperative this morning. There is no other name by which we must be saved. God, there's, there's no one outside of the need of salvation. There's no man, there's no woman, there's no child. God, salvation is the need of everyone. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see how great Christ is. Then you would give us ears to consider and to hear how marvelous he is, how how deep is his salvation? How wide is the love of God available to us in Christ Jesus? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As Peter preaches the gospel there in the temple under Solomon's portico, we, we discover that the apostles, Peter and John, are there together, that they're opposed by the very same temple leaders who had opposed Jesus. And the first thing I want us to see is that when we proclaim the gospel, we're doing the work of Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, Luke said Jesus' work began. I told you the work he began to do in Luke's gospel, but I'm telling you about the work he continues to do in the church. You say, well, it's Christmas time and you're preaching Acts. Well, here's part of the reason why. The incarnation of Christ, in a sense, continues in his church. Christ was made incarnate. He's seated at the right hand of the Father where He is incarnate. But we put flesh and bone in the world on Christ as the church. You say, well, Christ was born at Christmas for me, and that's great. But we are now a kingdom of priests to our God, reconciling lost sinners to God by being Christ in the world. And what we discover is, is as we represent Christ in the world, the first thing we discover is we should expect opposition. Not everybody's going to like the message. We should expect opposition from those who are satisfied with living for themselves. As Peter preaches the gospel, Peter and John, it tells us in, in the first verse, keep on speaking to the people. The, the miracle you'll, require, you'll recall happened around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the man was healed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and now it's evening time by the time they're arrested. In other words, you say, well, pastor, why do you do those sermon discussion groups on Wednesday night? Because that's what Peter and John did, right? He preached his sermon, and then they had sermon discussion right there in the temple. They're asking questions, and as they're talking to the people for an extended period of time, eventually the priests and the captain of the temple and some of the Sadducees who've kind of been listening in, they've had it up to here, and they're like, that's it. This is done. We're shutting it down. The, the priests were the people who oversaw the sacrificial system and implemented the sacrificial system. The captain of the temple was the sort of the administrative assistant for the high priest. And he had the power to arrest people in the temple, if necessary, to keep the peace. Finally, we, we read that the Sadducees were there. Many of the priests were Sadducees. And the Sadducees, you remember why the Sadducees are so Sadducee? Everybody remembers that, right? Because, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. 
They considered only the first five books of the Old Testament to be authoritative. They, they considered those first five writings of Moses, and then the rest of the Old Testament they, they would ignore or say that it had no authority in their life, and they therefore denied the resurrection of Christ or of anyone. Meanwhile, Peter and John are proclaiming what? They're proclaiming a resurrection, and not just any resurrection, but the resurrection of Jesus, and that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and it's Jesus who has performed the miracle in this man's life. And they're talking about Jesus, and people are listening to this message of Jesus, and God is working, and then boom, these leaders are upset, and they come upon them, verse 1. Do you see that? They came upon them. Now, that doesn't mean they just strolled up there like, hey, what's going on, guys? To come upon somebody is like, uh, it's like when Hob asked me after I beat him ten times in a row in ping pong, you want to take this outside? Right? It's to come up upon somebody. It's to be confrontational. The reason for the confrontation is in verse 2. They were greatly annoyed. They were agitated. They were irritated. They had had it up to here. Anybody's mom ever say that to them? That happened with me and my sister a few times. We were irritating one another. My mom's in the kitchen listening. And she would roll around the corner. I've had it up to here. All right. Got it. We're done. They were irritated. For two reasons that we read in verse 2. Because they were teaching the people. And they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. First, they're, they're teaching. This is, this is the turf of the priests. It's the turf of the Sadducees. It's the turf of the Sanhedrin. They're, they're the teachers. Not, not these upstart fishermen. But they're teaching and the people are listening. And they're listening like they've never listened before. These, these leaders felt that their authority was being undermined or, or threatened or eroded. And they were right. Because there's no power in biblical teaching that ignores the Messiah. There's no power in biblical teaching that ignores the resurrection. That ignores the promises of God being fulfilled in Christ. Teaching the Bible without seeing the Son of God is like trying to put together a puzzle without the picture that comes on the top of the box. Doesn't add up. Doesn't work. There's no power in it. But when you see Christ as the message and the meaning and the purpose of the Old Testament, it starts to add up. It starts to connect. It starts to make sense. And the Spirit honors the Son and glorifies the Son in that kind of preaching. And He begins to draw men and women and boys and girls to Himself. And the apostles are preaching a crucified and resurrected King. And the Spirit is opening hearts and eyes to see this Jesus in the preaching of the Gospel and these temple leaders feel their authority being eclipsed and they don't like it. The story about God's Son hinges on the truth of His resurrection. It's a truth the Sadducees wrongly rejected. Jesus Himself had challenged them on this. You recall, He knows they only listened to the writings of Moses. So what did He say in Luke chapter 20? But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. These, these people were dead, and yet he references them as though they are living. Why? Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. 
Moses also wrote of the resurrection in Genesis chapter 22. He foreshadowed it. You remember Isaac? Take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to a mountain I'm going to show you. And you're going to offer him as a sacrifice. And for three days, he walks to the mountain. And on the third day, he lifts his eyes to the mountain where he's going to sacrifice his son. And in the Bible, most of the time, the lifting of the eyes means good things, not bad things. Isaac lifts his eyes when Rebekah comes and he's, because he likes his wife who's coming. So he lifts his eyes to the mountain in, in hope and in anticipation, even though God said you're going to slaughter your son. And it makes no sense. You remember what happened, God provides a ram, but then in the providing of the ram, he says, one day a lamb will come. Genesis 22, 14, 22, 14. one day in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And Jesus is that son who is also that lamb who's been crucified and raised. We should have been expecting the resurrected Christ. And Here's the reality, church, if you, if you deny the resurrection, if you reject a future bodily resurrection, it has massive implications for us in the present. It, it means all the glory that you are ever going to enjoy, you've got to have it right now. It, it means all the power and the status and the wealth and the leisure that you will ever enjoy are supremely important right now. Not surprisingly, the, the Sadducees were wealthy. They were the high priests. They were the aristocratic families, they were the merchants, and they were consumed with preserving their status. You see, church, if there's no resurrection, there's not going to be ultimate accountability for whatever wrongs we do to get ahead. If there's no resurrection, your story is very short, and your horizon of hope is vanishing day by day. In fact, have you ever discovered about the time you figure out what you're supposed to do with your life, you're, you're getting old and creaky and your back hurts? Praise God for the resurrection and the life. Praise God for an eternity to, to grow and mature and develop and to worship Christ and to serve Him bodily forever. If there's no resurrection, if you can convince yourself to ignore the purposelessness of it all, you will do whatever you can to get as much as you can while you can because this is all there is sadly there's a lot of christians who live their life this way they, they've been infected with the wrong ambition they've been infected with an ambition for for self rather than for the savior i fear that there's a lot of christians more like sadducees than we care to admit living like the resurrection isn't real i got to get in one more vacation because I'm getting older. I've got to do one more thing. And it's not wrong to take vacations, but ladies and gentlemen, this, this is nothing compared to where we're headed in Christ. The Christian message, our message, the message proclaimed by Peter and John and by every faithful minister of the gospel down through the ages is one that is anchored in the hope of the resurrection that comes one way in Christ. They were preaching in Christ the resurrection. All will be raised, and those who have faith in Jesus will be raised in Jesus when He returns, and His resurrection will be our resurrection. Peterson says it this way, Jesus' resurrection guarantees God's promise to restore everything, that it will most certainly be fulfilled, and that those who trust in Jesus 
will enjoy all the benefits of the salvation that His resurrection makes possible in His new creation. The gospel hinges on the bodily resurrection to life everlasting with Christ through faith. Church, we have a radically different story than that of the world. But if, as Leslie Newbegin writes, excuse me, Leslie Newbegin writes, the biblical story, if the biblical story doesn't control our thinking, we will be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. The resurrection means judgment awaits, and it means Jesus makes all the difference. The resurrection means that delayed rewards are the best rewards. Think about that. We don't like to wait. We are such an instant gratification society. Any information we need, anything we need to learn, we just hop on YouTube and figure it out, and that's great. But what's not great is when we get so focused on near-term rewards and success and achievement that we forget the resurrection and the life that we have in Christ. The resurrection means that I can suffer now for the sake of Jesus because one day I won't suffer anymore. The resurrection means that a, a husband loving his wife like Jesus loved the church makes all the sense in the world. The resurrection means a wife submitting herself to the loving leadership of her husband makes all the sense in the world. The resurrection means living modestly now to give generously means we've lost nothing in the process. The resurrection means we are free to spend our lives for the glory of God and the good of the nations knowing that eternity awaits where we will enjoy the fruit of every good work we have done in His name. Do we believe that we are storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and that we will enjoy them bodily forever or do we not? Can we feel, can we sense, can we taste, can we smell how great it will be to be raised and to worship our King? Do our lives demonstrate that? Peter and John were talking about the resurrected Christ. The, the resurrected Christ means we need more than religious routines. It means we need more than motivational speeches. It means we need more than practical life hacks to make it through the next day. It means we've got to be united by the Spirit with the living Christ, we, who is the resurrection and the life. It means we don't focus so much on making the most of this life that we miss the life to come. But the Sadducees, like many today, were quite happy with their status and the status quo. So they do to Peter and John what they have already done to Jesus. They, they arrest them. They had arrested Jesus and handed him over to Pilate. Now they arrest Peter and John and it's already evening, so they put him into custody to await a trial the next day. And at this point, we might say, or we might think, that this early community of Christ followers is going to fizzle faster than the fad called New Coke back in the 80s. Anybody have a New Coke? It was really bad. Praise God for Coke Classic. But, but the opposite happens, right? Look at verse 4. You get to the end of verse 3, you're like, oh man, they're arrested. Verse 4, many were added to the family. 
So we should not only expect opposition when we share the gospel, we, we should expect many who are spiritually hungry to hear and to believe. And now you might be asking, like, when I read verse 4, nothing tells me that they're spiritually hungry. How do you know that they're spiritually hungry? Did you just make that up and put that in the text? Here's how I know. The miracle happened at 3 o'clock, and now it's 6 or 7 o'clock. They hung out for four hours listening to, to Jesus proclaim. These people listened to the sermon, and then they, we got to get lunch. No, they were like, give me more. i, I got to know more. I, I need more of this Jesus. God was working in their hearts as they heard the preaching of Peter and the teaching of Peter and John. And, and suddenly this story is of one miracle, of the healing of one man. Suddenly it becomes a story of thousands of even greater miracles as these Jews realize life does not consist in maintaining appearances or managing expectations, but instead in trusting and following the ruling and reigning Messiah. Verse, verse 4 begins with that precious word of contrast, but. I love the word but. It's a great gospel word. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God. The apostles were opposed and they were arrested, but look what God did. They could arrest the temple. The temple leaders could arrest the apostles, but they could not arrest the gospel. And that's good news. Whatever they do to you for preaching the gospel, whatever persecution comes to your life for owning and preaching the gospel, they can arrest you. They might even kill you, but they can't kill the gospel. As Peter preached, God, God used the word about Christ to open minds and hearts to, to their need for Christ. And many of those who heard the word believed You can go throughout Acts, and as you see people come to saving faith in Christ, you'll see three things. You'll see a person of God preaching the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God. People cannot be converted unless they hear the Word, unless the Spirit is there making the transformation in their heart, and unless somebody is faithful to take the Word. And the question is, what about us, church? Will we be like these apostles? Will we be faithful, even in the face of adversity and persecution, to proclaim the Word, believing that when some hear the Word, that some will believe? Believe is more than just mental trust. It is to entrust someone's life to something or to someone else completely. They completely entrust themselves to Christ because the Word of God has been proclaimed by the person of God in the power of the Spirit who is opening blind eyes to behold their sin and their great need for Jesus. And what is fascinating to me is, is that these conversions to King Jesus are happening in spite of great opposition. These new believers are seeing the leaders that they've respected rejecting Jesus all over again. To trust in Jesus means they're going to have to relearn everything they've ever known. They don't come to Jesus because life's going to be easy. They come to Jesus because in Jesus is life everlasting. Through faith in Jesus, thousands more join the community of the King. Now what's interesting about the wording in verse 4 is it could either mean that about 2,000 more were added to the family because there were 120, right? And then 3,000 trusted Christ, and now we're at 5,000 perhaps, meaning 2,000 were added, or it could mean that 5,000 were added that day. We're not sure. It, it could mean either the, 
the balance of the evidence seems to be that, that Luke in the book of Acts is just communicating massive growth rather than a, an accumulated number, which might mean that by today, in Acts 4, there's already 8,000 believers in Jerusalem. Either way, 5,000 or 8,000. What a day! I'm still looking forward to the day that I get to preach the gospel and I see 100 come to saving faith in Christ, much less 1,000 or 2,000, but, but what a day it is. On the day that two key leaders are arrested, thousands are added to the family. And there's a lesson in there for us, church. I think so often we adopt worldly wisdom in the way that we evaluate church life. Man, if the church is growing and if everything's going great and people are coming, then, then the church is healthy and everything's awesome. But, but in seasons of adversity, we, we sometimes think God's not there, that God's not working. We sometimes believe that God's not up to something, but what God is looking for is faithfulness. And in the midst of the crazy, in the midst of the adversity, God is still at work and He will still get His harvest. May God work mightily in our lives and in our church to save Dozens, perhaps hundreds, even thousands, even in a culture where it seems harder than ever before. Do, do we want a Christian America, or do we want people converted to Christ? Sometimes I hear people say, man, we, our country just needs revival. And, and we think about that legislatively, like we, we need people in the White House and in Congress and in, over in Richmond who are making better policy, but what we really need is people to be converted to King Jesus. That's the revival that we need. We don't need to transform our culture first. We need to bring people to Christ and then let whatever happens in the culture happen. We don't sit on our hands bemoaning the culture and not share Christ until the culture gets right. We share Christ regardless of the culture that we're in. There was nothing about the conditions that Peter and John were functioning in that would say 2,000 people or 5,000 people were going to get saved. And they could have sat on their hands and said, well, the temple leaders are against us. Nobody wants us. They've arrested us. There's nothing we can do. But look what God did in a culture that was totally anti-Christ. When we, when we pray for revival, what are we praying for? What do we, what do we have in our mind's eye? May God bring people to saving faith in Christ, period, full stop. Lay, leave the results to God. But it was costly to the apostles. They spent a night in the slammer. And so the third thing we see in this text is we must proclaim the name of Jesus even when it is uncomfortable or costly. If I had been Peter and John there, in prison, I think I probably would have been thinking the quickest way out of prison back to the church so I could help baptize the new 2,000 or 5,000 believers. But on the next day, verse 5, Peter and John are, are bold with the Sanhedrin. They don't try to get out of jail quickly. Instead, they press the issue of the gospel. The, the scene here reminds us of when this exact same group put Jesus on trial. In a sense, Jesus is on trial again. You remember when Paul was persecuting the church, he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and what does Jesus say to Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Try as these leaders might, they cannot get rid of Jesus. 
In verse 7, they formed a semicircle and they put Peter and John in their midst and they asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? The temple leaders have an authority problem. They like power, they like their control, they like their comforts of their position. So they asked Peter and John to identify the source of the power behind the healing of the man born lame. And they asked them by what authority they do this. In verse 8, we see the Spirit who had already filled Peter at Pentecost, now filling him again with divine power and boldness and clarity for this situation. So here's a question, did did Peter lose the Spirit and then need to get the Spirit again? No. This is a fresh moment and a fresh opportunity for him to access fresh power from the Spirit for this situation. Jesus had promised that this would happen in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says this, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Listen to this. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. After politely addressing the temple leaders in verse 8, Peter is more forceful in verse 9. He asks this question, If you are examining me and Peter for the good deed of healing a man, then I'm going to tell you how he's healed. If I could translate verse 9 a little bit more loosely this morning, We'll call this the the DJPV or the PDPV. If I could translate verse 9 a little more loosely, here's what Peter's saying. Y'all ready for this? Seriously? The dude couldn't walk and he's walking and praising God. What is wrong with you people? How could you not rejoice in the complete healing of a man born lame from birth? Are you so concerned With your authority and your status that you can't celebrate the good that God has done in this man's life? I mean, clearly it's from God. He's born lame from birth. Nobody does this. What is wrong with you people? You know, I I hope, North Roanoke, that when God blesses other churches, when he does great things through other people in other places that will rejoice. I long for God to work in this place. I long to see hundreds, perhaps thousands, coming to saving faith in Christ through North Roanoke Baptist Church. But if he chooses to do it somewhere else, will, will we rejoice in that? Will we delight in that? God, help us not be like the Sadducees. And the Sanhedrin. Peter says in verse 10, But if, if you need to know the power and the authority for this man's healing, I'm going to tell you. Verse 10, Peter is, is forceful and direct. He, he doesn't tell them what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. He begins with these words, Let it be known. In other words, listen up. I'm going to answer your question. In fact, I want to tell all the people of Israel, Here's what you need to know. Here's what the people of the covenants of God need to know. There's there's one name. There's there's one authority. What they need to know is they didn't cancel Jesus' authority by crucifying him because God raised him up. The man stands here well, healthy, whole, sound. How? Verse 10, by or in the name of Jesus. 
And it's not just any Jesus, it's the Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you crucified, who was raised by the power of God, and has been given the name which is above every other name. And what is that name? That name is Yahweh, or Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He has been given that name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, Philippians 2 tells us, that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus is returning, and if you wait to confess it till he gets back, it's too late. You've got to do it right now. Jesus is both the power and the authority for the healing of this man. And the indisputable evidence right in front of their faces is a man who is standing who previously couldn't walk. As Peterson writes, God has accomplished his purposes through Jesus despite the opposition of God's people. In raising him from the dead, God began the process of renewal and restoration that will culminate in a transformed creation at the general resurrection of all believers. In verse 11, Peter goes from answering to accusing. I love verse 11. The trial judges are put on trial. The ones who are holding court are suddenly taken to court. And here's what Peter says. You rejected Jesus. You're supposed to be the builders. You're supposed to be building toward something for the people of God. Building toward a kingdom with a king. And you missed the king entirely. You rejected the stone which has become the cornerstone. He quotes from Psalm 118 verse 22. A psalm that Jesus also quoted to refute these same leaders in Matthew 21 and in Luke chapter 20. These men, these priests and rulers and elders were in a great position to build toward Christ, but they rejected Him and despised Him. We need to feel the weight of these words. It would be like someone who was a diamond hunter discovering the hope diamond and tossing it aside like it was a piece of bubblegum stuck on the bottom of his shoe. That's what they did with Jesus. The whole reason they were there, everything that they should have been anticipating through the sacrificial system had come. And what did they do? If they were builders building with stone, they looked at the stone that hold the whole, holds the whole building together. They looked at the stone that was the point of what they were designing and building. And they were like, that is garbage. And Peter says, the stone that you rejected like that? Verse 11, do you see it? He has become the cornerstone. He has become the person and the point. He has become the atoning sacrifice. He's become, he is Lord of all. How did this happen? God raised him. He exalted him and he seated him at his right hand where he now prays for those who have faith in him and he empowers us to live and to work and to parent and to adult. I love that new term, adulting. Some of y'all never heard that word. Do y'all know it's hard to be an adult? Like one day you grow up and you're like, wow, I thought I wanted to be an adult. Now I'm not so sure. It was nice being a kid. Did you know the power for adulting is found in the Holy Spirit of God who applies the life of Christ to your heart? You can adult in Jesus' name. So church, we've got to build our lives and our marriages and our families and our parenting and our work. We've got to build our church on Jesus' 
Christ who is the cornerstone. Why are so many churches flailing and faltering and, and falling apart? Because they've forgotten the cornerstone. They're building on my program. They're building on so-and-so's personality. They're building on their church's past. They're building on a song we used to sing, but they've thrown the stone away. And they can't figure out why they can't build anymore. You can't build anything worth having when you throw the cornerstone away. We've got to build our lives on Christ. This means that all authority must flow from His authority. And it's got to be ordered by His authority and yield to His authority. Or ultimately, it will be crushed. What did Jesus say when He quoted this same passage? He went on to say this, The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The stone that was cast away has been exalted by the Father and set in place as the foundation of any life that will last. And that means the temple leaders are in grave danger. So Peter tells them once more of Jesus. Which brings us to our final point. You say, man, that was a lot of hostility, a lot of opposition, a lot of adversity. But Peter still takes the opportunity, as we must do as well, and he explains salvation comes only in Jesus' name. We, we could understand if Peter and John wanted to dip set out of there, get the trial over. But Peter, in verse 12, remains bold. Rolling right out of verse 11, where he proclaims that Christ is the cornerstone. He says in verse 12, salvation is in no one else. Now, in the translation we read, there was a there is. Uh, if, you, uh, if you enjoy writing or you want to be a better writer, take the there is's out of your writing. Be more direct. Be more straight. Think about what the subject is. And the subject in this sentence is salvation. In the Greek language, there is no there is. This is what Peter says. Salvation is in no one else. Period. Not there is no salvation. Salvation is in no one else. It's a reminder, church, that we are not responsible for the response of other people, but we are responsible for sharing the truth that salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. The, the default position for every man, woman, boy, and girl is not heaven, but hell. It is not life everlasting in the love of God, but life everlasting under His wrath. And it is only in Jesus that we can be spared from the wrath of God against sin. Romans 5.9 So what does Peter tell them? One more time, these people who are accusing him, these people who have thrown him in prison, what does he say? You can still be saved. Salvation is still possible. Even though you crucified Jesus, God raised him. And it is possible in the name of Jesus, this resurrected and reigning king, for you to be saved. But make no mistake, he's the only way. There is a way but there's just one way. Do you see that? He uses two negatives. In the Greek, you're allowed to use double negatives. It means you're very emphatic about something. He says it's in no one else, and there's no other name. Only the Lord 
can save. You can search the world over. You can go anywhere under heaven, which is a reference to the whole of creation, and you won't find another person who bears the name through which salvation comes. You won't find another man, woman, boy, or girl who possesses the name Yahweh. It's only Jesus who does that. It's not the Virgin Mary. It's not the Pope. It's not Muhammad. It's not Abraham or Confucius, and certainly not Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Only Jesus saves. That's worth an amen. I know y'all are tired and it's been a long sermon, but salvation is in Jesus, the exalted Lord and King, and no one else. Salvation can't be found anywhere else and in no one else. Pastor Stephen Lawson said it this way, Jesus is the only Savior of the world. No one else was born of a virgin. No one else lived a sinless life. No one else died bearing our sins. No one else was raised from the dead never to die again. And no one else is seated at the right hand of God, saving those who trust in Him. So what do we do, church? We must come to Jesus in faith and repentance. We must lay down our rebellion. We must surrender our excuses. We must stop living like there's no resurrection. We must be in line with the authority of Jesus. We must be overwhelmed by the only one who can qualify us to stand before God as judge on the day of our King's return with great joy. And we must boldly share that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. In Jesus, the unfaithful ones can find rest. In Jesus, those who are far from God can be brought near. In Jesus, even those who had previously cast Him aside, Peter says if they'll trust Him, they can be saved. Have you been casting Christ aside? Have you been trying to live this adulting life in your own power, in your own strength, in your own authority? Then why not today surrender your heart to Christ? Why not today come to the one who has the name above every other name and be saved? Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for the guests who are coming. God, thank you for the lives of those before me and online and over in the gym who are struggling. God, thank you that in Christ, in His name, under His authority, God, there is rest and hope and purpose and and there is resurrection to life everlasting. God, if there's anyone here who needs that transformation on the inside, who needs that confidence that at your arrival they will stand before you with great joy knowing they will worship you forever, God, I pray they would come. I pray you would bring them to saving faith. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.